Welcome to Omniform. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Onca Farm in Gilgan, College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University. Today is June 18th, and this pod will be dropping uh, shortly. We have a lot to talk about, starting with a new drug approval, and that is Lurbanectidin, brand name Zebzelka, which uh, the brand name sounds like an old Nintendo game. Now, if Lurbanectidin sounds familiar, you might be familiar with the drug Trebectidin, which comes from the C-score, and Lurbanectidin is an analog of that. Uh, so it's an alkylating agent, binds to the minor groove, causes a kink in the whole DNA, uh, you know, in layman's terms. Uh, so in that respect, it's a bit of a dinosaur. It's an old-fashioned alkylating cytotoxic agent that's approved, you know, and we see all these target agents. So here we have, uh, um, you know, traditional cytotoxic chemo uh, that's approved. And the approval is uh, for metastatic small cell lung cancer after at least one line of platinum-based chemo. So let's talk about the approval first. This is based off of an overall response rate of 35%. As the investigator saw, 30% on independent review with like 100 patients. All of them had platinum etoposide in the past. Only 8% had received prior immunotherapy. And today, the standard of care for extensive stage or metastatic small cell lung cancer would be platinum etoposide plus immunotherapy, atezolizumab, dervalumab. Uh, so this is studied in patients who, um, you know, before that was standard of care. Because uh, this study, I think, started in, in 2015 or 2016. Um, now, standard second-line treatment, that's that's the approval. It's an accelerated approval, again, based on an N of 100 and overall response rate. So the accelerated approval pathway is supposed to be for an unmet need. We already have an established second-line therapy uh, for uh, extensive small cell lung cancer after progression on prior platinum-based therapy. If you progress and it's been more than six months, you can go right back to platinum etoposide. Uh, less than six months, topotecan is the recommended treatment. That's based off of several studies, one of which compared topotecan to the old CAVE regimen, which was the standard of care before platinum etoposide, cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and vincristine is CAVE, that showed equivalent efficacy but decreased toxicity with topotecan. And that's saying something because topotecan is fairly myelosuppressive. And overall survival benefit of topotecan has been shown compared to best supportive care, 26 weeks versus 14 weeks. Now, topotecan does have a, a low response rate, 10 to 20%, but that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't work. We know topotecan is better than nothing. We don't know that lurbanectidin is better than nothing. So that's a, it's a little puzzling, especially when you put in context of what we know now about the current standard of treatment for extensive stage small cells, platinum toposide, IO, immunotherapy, and only 8% of people had ever received IO uh, on this study. So when you try to slot this into the place of care, I think most would say you do platinum toposide IO, second line topotecan, then maybe, you know, third line lurbanectidin, although it hasn't been studied in the third line setting, so maybe it's a whole lot more toxic in the third line setting than earlier in therapy. Um, we don't know. Uh, another question I have about this approval is the exclusion criteria for this study. And you can find this. Uh, this was published in, uh, in Lancet Oncology by Trigone College, uh, Trigo, T-R-I-G-O, in 2020. Uh, and you can look at the protocol. They did, they did not exclude people who relapsed more than six months after prior chemo. Uh, and those folks you would expect to do fairly well on a cytotoxic drug. Um, so I'm not sure what the role of Lurby is. Lurby is what I'm going to call this drug. Um, 
So, you know, I'm not quite sure where it's going to be used, but some oncologist out there is going to use it. So let's talk about uh, how it's used. So the dose is 3.2 milligrams per meter squared, IV every 21 days, just an old-fashioned dinosaur dosing. Now, all patients received 8 and 8, 8 milligrams of ondansetron, 8 milligrams of dexamethasone, um, and despite that, 22 percent of patients had emesis. Now, my kind of uh, standard of care or my practice is if a patient has one episode of emesis on cytotoxic chemo based on quality of life studies, just one episode is enough to upgrade our anti-emetic prophylaxis. So if you got on Danzatron and appropriate dex, the next thing that you would do might be extending dex to days two and three or adding a neurokinin one antagonist. And herein lies a problem with lerbonectidin is it's an accelerated approval, and based on laboratory in vitro studies, it's a 3A4 substrate. The PI says to avoid strong and moderate 3A4 inhibitors. FOSA, prepotent, apreptent, natupotent are moderate 3A4 inhibitors. So you could use rolapotent safely, um, but they're actually, the PI clearly says, quote, there have been no formal drug-drug interaction studies with lerbonectidin. So we don't know how severe uh, those interactions are with our moderate 3A4 inhibitors like apreptent or deltiazem, etc. Uh, now, as I mentioned, it's basically typical chemo. The median time to myelosuppression to a grade 3 or 4 neutropenia was 15 days. The median duration of neutropenia, ANC less than 500, was 7 days. About 1 in 5 patients required GCSF for secondary prophylaxis. Primary GCSF was not allowed, but 1 in 5 required GCSF afterwards. And um, the PI recommends GCSF for any ANC less than 500. Uh, typical hold parameters, ANC less than 1,500, platelets less than 1,000, and there are dose reductions both for hematologic toxicity as well as hepatotoxicity. Uh, grade 3 elevations of AST and ALT happened in, in 3 and 6% respectively, and that usually happened within one week. So here we have a new drug, lerbonectidin, kind of fun to say. Uh, and now let's move on to the obligatory immunotherapy update of the week. Uh, on June 10th, the FDA approved nivolumab uh, in patients with metastatic squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus uh, after a platinum and 5-FU or capecitabine-based regimen. So after platinum and a fluoropyrimidine. Now, uh, esophageal cancer you can classify in two ways. Squamous, which is usually the top two-thirds or the, I think the proximal two-thirds of the esophagus, and in the bottom third near the, the gastroesophageal junctions, more adenocarcinoma. This is a squamous cell approval, and this is based on the Attraction 3 study, which I think is a little odd that it's not a checkmate study for nivolumab. Attraction 3 sounds more like a study for a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor. Uh, this has been published in Lancet Oncology in 2019 by Cato and colleagues, K-A-T-O. Uh, roughly 400 patients were randomized one-to-one -one after you know, receiving uh, a platinum and 5-FU or capecitabine-based regimen to either nivolumab or a taxing, paclitaxel or docetaxel, appropriate comparator. Uh, median overall survival was improved in the nivolumab arm, 10.9 months versus 8.4 months. So, um, you know, fairly, uh, you know, fairly modest benefit in terms of, of overall survival. The response rate was about the same in both arms, and the PFS was about the same in both arms. In fact, PFS numerically was better in the chemo arm. And as we are seeing a trend when you compare immunotherapy to chemo alone, we're seeing that our, our Kaplan-Meier curves cross over, uh, in some, oftentimes in PFS, but especially in overall survival, they cross over at about five months. Um, which makes you wonder, is an immunotherapy plus chemo perhaps a better arm to study than immunotherapy alone in these patients. Uh, one thing that's that's also, uh, so anyway, so nivolumab, metastatic esophageal, second line after platinum, 5-FU, 
has overall survival benefit, uh, so that's good. And uh, you know, although initially the immunotherapy folks did worse than chemo, but in the long run, the immunotherapy folks with nivolumab did better. One thing that's puzzling is quote, uh, this is from the the FDA write up quote overall survival overall survival benefit was observed regardless of PDL1 status. However, if you do look at PDL1 positivity greater than one percent versus less than 1%, you do see their hazard ratio uh, is only significant if you look at those greater than 1%. The approval, though, is for all, um, regardless of PDL1 status. Um, so this is going to be, you know, get to be our standard, I think, second-line option for these folks. It'll be interesting to see further study, uh, I think, of Nevo plus chemo uh, in, in these folks. Uh, the next immunotherapy update, June 16th, pembrolizumab was approved for adults or pediatric patients with unresectable or metastatic tumors with no standard treatment options with a high tumor burden defined as more than 10 mutations per megabase on a foundation one, the CDX assay. Um, this is a puzzling one. This is a puzzling approval. Okay, so this is another site or tissue agnostic approval based on a biomarker. In this case, not PDL1 status, uh, but tumor mutation burden. Uh, and there's a history of tumor mutation burden being an exciting, although disappointing, endpoint with some lung cancer studies with nivolumab. Um, quote, efficacy was investigated in prospectively planned retrospective analysis of 10 cohorts. So to my mind, this is the only approval uh, that I can think of that was based on a retrospective analysis. Um, it was planned in advance, but it was still a retrospective analysis. And this is Keynote 158, uh, specifically 10 cohorts of patients, about 100, uh, exactly 102 patients. The overall response rate was 29%, and only 4% of those were complete responses. Um, so the, the overall response rate and the CR rate certainly is not impressive, uh, which has a lot of people... Uh, asking questions about, um, is this approval really worthwhile? I will point out, though, the duration of response in those who responded, more than 12 months. So if you had a response, 57% of those folks, their response lasted for more than 12 months. The duration of response more than 24 months was seen in 50% of those that responded. So if they responded, they tended to do pretty well for at least two years. Their response went on. Now, not very many responded, less than a third. Um... And, um, you know, the Keynote 158 originally had 1,000 patients. Of those, about 800 had tissue available for tumor mutation burden testing. And of that, 102, or only 10% of the total cohort, actually met the criteria. Um, uh, and if you look closer at the numbers, again, the overall response rate was 29%. If you look at the small cell population, it was 29%. That's in 34 patients. The next most common disease was cervical cancer with 16 patients. That response rate was 31%. Endometrial cancer, 15 patients, response rate 47%. Anal cancer, 14 patients, response rate 7%. Um, you know, you, you almost wonder if these response rates maybe are the same regardless of tumor mutation burden. Um, it's an uncontrolled study. It's a retrospective analysis. Uh, you know, what do we say about retrospective analyses here? All right, the next approval, same date, June 16th. Gemtuzumab ozogamycin approved for CD33 positive AML um, in pediatric patients. And this is based on the AAML0531 study. Uh, these were patients aged 0 to 29, and I think the approval is only for those over the age of 1, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so they received um, f five cycles of chemo, uh, and they got two doses of gemtuzumab, three mg per kg, 
uh, three, sorry, three milligrams per meter squared, uh, one dose during induction and one dose during intensification too. About a thousand patients and there was an absolute improvement in event-free survival of 8%, 48% versus 40% favoring gemtuzumab. An event, an event when event-free survival was a lack of remission after second uh, intensification or relapse or death. Now there was no overall survival benefit. So this is kind of an odd approval in my mind for a disease like AML that is curable. We, we can measure cure uh, in this disease. So to approve a drug that doesn't improve overall survival uh, or cure rates, uh, I find puzzling as well. I'm just puzzled today. Um, and it, what I want to pass along to uh, for the Oncopharm community is that gemtuzumab was associated with prolonged cytopenias, especially during that second dose intensification too. So prolonged neutropenia occurred in 47% versus 43% with gemtuzumab. So not a big di- difference in prolonged uh, neutropenia. Prolonged thrombocytopenia, 64% versus 55%. And these again are in intensification too. And most concerning, there was an increase in deaths in patients who achieved remission, 5% with gemtuzumab versus 2%, those who did not. So that's certainly concerning. Uh, okay, so we've, we've talked about some puzzling approvals. Um, so let's talk about maybe something that is positive from an approval or, or data standpoint. So the data for venetoclax plus a hypomethylene agent like azacitidine or decitabine compared to hypomethylene agent alone, um, a study of uh, Viali or Vial A uh, was presented at... Uh, EHA, which I believe is the European Hematology Hematology Association, as an abstract. Now, let's go back to a couple years ago. Venetoclax was approved for uh, AML in patients who were not candidates for induction chemo, plus a hypomethylene agent or plus low-dose cytarabine. And the plus hypomethylate agent was based off of, you know, surrogate markers of uh, overall response rate in fewer than 100 patients. And we've talked about that's kind of the standard these days for the FDA. Uh, And that's an accelerated approval, which should require a confirmatory study, uh, or else they can lose their approval, like we saw with uh, uh, oleratumab uh, about a year ago. So this is the confirmatory study, it appears. 430 patients with AML uh, who are unfit uh, for uh, intensive chemo randomized 2 to 1 to venetoclax and a hypomethylene agent or hypomethylene agent alone. Uh, the mean overall survival was improved from 9.6 months with uh, HMA alone to 14.7 months when venetoclax was added. That's a hazard ratio of 0.66. Um, that's statistically significant, and what's impressive um, most to me is not that hazard ratio. It's a decent hazard ratio, right? But the Kaplan-Meier curves continue to widen over time for overall survival. So the longer uh, patients are, are on study, uh, the benefit uh, was robust and continued. So, so that's certainly good news and confirms that early approval we had uh, with venetoclax plus HMA from, uh, I'd say, maybe 18 months ago, if I'm guessing. Um, the last big approval we'll talk about it was June 15th. Gardasil, the HPV9 vaccine, was um, approved for prevention of head and neck cancer uh, to prevent uh, HP, head and neck cancer associated with HPV 16, 18, 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58, uh, which I don't think you have to remember. Um, now, this is odd. It's an ex- <laughs> yeah, puzzling. It's an accelerated approval for a vaccine. And this appears to be, from what I can tell, because when the vaccine is approved or a vaccine is approved, there's not the the nice formal write-up like when an oncology drug is approved. But this appears to be based off of a CDC analysis looking at HPV-positive cancers that are not cervical cancers 
pre and post Gardasil approval. So they looked at, like say, head and neck cancers from 1993 to 05, prior to the very first HPV vaccine being approved. And then head and neck cancers, presumably from 2012 to 2016. So it's kind of real world data of this. And I haven't seen the absolute numbers, but this is certainly something that has been theorized for a long time. We know that HPV can prevent cervical cancer and anal cancer. Really, it can prevent the precursors to cervical and anal cancer. The, the, um, those uh, in situ dysplasia and cervical cancer or um, intraneoplasm lesions, I think is what it's called in anal cancer. Um, and we hope that we would see decreased rates of head and neck cancer um, as well, the HPV-positive head and neck cancer. Uh, and that appears to be the case. So uh, added uh, public health benefits of, of vaccination, which is always good. And then finally, I'll just wrap by saying you guys probably already know this, but the recovery trial out of UK showed that dexmedazone did show, this is not oncology pharmacy related, but I think everyone needs to know this, dexmedazone uh Press release came out from Oxford University, who I guess ran this study in the UK, of dexmedazone 6 milligrams, a puzzling dose, not 4, not 8, but 6. 6 milligrams of dex for 10 days showed uh, an improvement overall survival in COVID-19 patients hospitalized and requiring some form of supplemental oxygen therapy, either just regular O2 or ventilated. And uh, the benefit in mortality reduction was greatest in those who are ventilated, something that everyone should know. Hat tip to Bernie Marini. Uh, who's a good follow on Twitter at uh, Berninini, and he kind of poured water on the whole fancy tocilizumab thing and said, let's just try steroids first in a randomized study. Uh, and he said that about three months ago, uh, which was prophetic. So follow him and ask him for lottery advice. Uh, well, that's all that I have for you today. Uh, thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip. You can follow the podcast both on Twitter and Instagram at UncleFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.